Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is May 27th, 2017. And this is Episode 7, Here to Help, an approach to managing spontaneous volunteers. In this episode, we discuss concepts surrounding managing those with the best of intentions during the worst of times. What does volunteering look like during a disaster? Where do they fit into disaster efforts and how can they be best utilized? We also have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Godso about spontaneous volunteers and explore our proposed Canadian approach to their management. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. The management of spontaneous or unaffiliated volunteers during the initial phases of disaster has always presented a unique challenge for emergency managers, and recent disaster experiences have shown us that traditional methods may not be sufficient. To discuss this, we reached out to Matt Godso, who's worked on some uniquely Canadian research to address this issue. I reached Matt in his home in Ottawa, and before we begin, there is one acronym that I would like to clarify. We use it a couple times during the interview. It is DRDC-CSS. It stands for Defense Research and Development Canada Centre for Security Science. So now that that's cleared up, let's listen to what Matt had to say. Today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Matt Godso. He is an adjunct faculty member at Royal Roads University, where he instructs the Master of Arts and Disaster and Emergency Management program. Uh, He also works as the manager of the Emergency Management Research Unit for Public Safety Canada. And before that, he did some work with the DRDC where he managed their natural hazard research portfolio. He brings with him an awful lot of experience and knowledge. We're very excited to speak with him. Matt Godso, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about the phenomenology of volunteers during disaster? Yeah, so I think an important thing for folks to realize is that this is kind of emergency management's dirty little secret. So basically for as long as we've been studying disasters, we are continually surprised by the fact that we get many, many volunteers showing up on site during disasters looking to help. And when we see these people arrive en masse, it always kind of causes a bit of consternation on behalf of the emergency managers themselves who tend to really like to keep control on situations and avoid things escalating in size and avoid scope creep and avoid the perimeters of events expanding. But we just see this over and over again. And despite the fact that initially there's often this reluctance to allow these spontaneous volunteers into emergency scenes or disaster scenes in particular, in the follow-up from those disasters, when we look at the lessons learned, we tend to see over and over again the pro-social, pro-social nature of those spontaneous volunteers and their interactions with the communities and their assistance with professional responders. So I say that it's a dirty secret because for a long time we've known that this happened. And we've known essentially since we started studying disasters, and we can go all the way back to the Halifax explosion 100 years ago. There was a researcher there um, by the last name of Prince who conducted some interesting work that looked at the spontaneous response to that event that, you know, we're just now coming up to 100 years that we've at least initially documented this phenomenon. And throughout the last century, every time we look at these events, Um, we see over and over again that this is something that we should be prepared for. 
And despite that, over and over again, whenever we see it, we continually act surprised. And what we've seen in the last decade or so with the rise of social media is that more and more, we can't hide the fact that all of these people are showing up and all these people are actually helping in important ways. And so in particular, over the last you know, five to 10 years, we've seen a growing push from emergency managers for who for a long time pretended that this wasn't going to happen, now being faced with the fact that decision makers know authoritatively from their experience with other disasters that we should be preparing for and better integrating spontaneous volunteers into our response plans. What exactly is a spontaneous volunteer? So there's a number of different ways that we can talk about it and break down the different elements of spontaneous volunteering, but a meaningful way that looks at collective social behavior during disasters was laid out by DINES. So there's something called the DINES or the DRC typology of disasters. And essentially it looks at two variables to create kind of a two by two table that would lay out for us different kinds of collective organizational behavior during disasters. And the two pieces that make up the matrix are tasks and structures. So whether or not an organization or a group of people are taking on new or novel tasks that they're not used to, or whether or not that group of people is operating within the confines of an existing structure or a new structure. So if we can kind of picture in our minds that four-part table, so, you know, two pieces in the top, two pieces at the bottom, and we'll go around it in a clockwise fashion. At the top left corner, we have something called a type one group, and that's an established group. So that would be your professional first responders, um, folks who are already established, they're doing their regular tasks during a disaster, and they already have a functional structure that allows them to continue to operate during that time. If we're to move over now to the top right of our little matrix, then we have what's called a type two group, and this is an expanding group. So it's a group for whom disaster response, or at least emergency operations, is a regular activity, but they may be expanding in different ways to take in either surge capacity from within their organization. So maybe they're getting some additional folks who don't normally work in emergencies, so they're expanding the size of the structure of their organization. Or they may also be able to take in um, volunteers who are showing up to assist during these events. If we go now to the bottom left-hand corner, you get your type three organizations, and these are extending organizations, so there may be a formal organization that already exists, but it's now uh, taking on new tasks. So perhaps it wasn't uh, an organization that dealt in disasters at all to begin with, and now they're starting to deal in the disaster response or in the immediate recovery, but the group itself, the structure, the governance of that organization continues to exist as it did before the event. And then finally, in the bottom right-hand corner, the area that I think is probably most interesting for us to talk about are these type four or emergent organizations. And this is a group of people who get together spontaneously, who don't necessarily have any kind of governance or any kind of structure to them. Um, and they also have not necessarily had any experience or at least any formal training or experience in the task that they're performing. So so that's that kind of four-part typology that we can use to think about these organizations. There's one other way to think about it that may be a little bit more useful, and that's really just thinking through whether or not volunteers who come to assist during disasters are affiliated or unaffiliated. So are they a known commodity whom first responders or emergency managers may already know and may already be able to vet in advance of an event? Or are they people who are showing up off the street or from organizations that we are unfamiliar with as emergency managers? So if we go back to our little uh, two by two matrix, 
the top type one, type two, the top two pieces would generally be incorporating affiliated volunteers and the type three and type four extending and emergent organization, organizations would generally be bringing in um, unaffiliated people, people who we don't necessarily know in advance. So these unaffiliated people, are we talking just about their connection to an organization or is there a training element as well? And for example, would a uh, a nurse who happens by a disaster scene, uh, would that be someone who's considered a spontaneous volunteer or maybe an extending, uh, part of an extending agency? Yeah, and that's really an interesting question. And one of the critiques of the way that we approach this broadly is that we don't know. If somebody is showing off the street, uh, showing up off the street uh, during an event and they present themselves at an emergency reception center and they tell you that you that they are a doctor, there's no real way that we can vet that, at least not consistently. So the assumption generally is or generally has to be that they're untrained because until we're able to verify their credentials, we have no way of knowing. So despite the fact that somebody may and often do have different types of training in advance of an event, if they present themselves at a reception center or any other part of a response or immediate recovery, unless there's some kind of a formal mechanism in place to vet them, we have no way to sufficiently leverage the skills and abilities that they may have. So you mentioned that spontaneous volunteers are in no way new to disaster management. Uh, what are some historic methods of, of managing these volunteers and the attitudes around the volunteering in general? Yeah, I think by and large, if we just go back to kind of our, our first principles of what emergency managers, where we've come from and what we've been doing historically. We tend to come from paramilitary organizations and we tend to think of much of what we do within the context of those paramilitary operational terms. So we think about ourselves as being on one side, in this case, the disaster and folks who are potentially breaking the law or uh, acting in antisocial ways during that event as being the bad guys. And then we have a bunch of people all around who are potential collateral damage or, or people who are bystanders to those events. And so we have based almost all of our assumptions for the better part of at least the last hundred years on the fact that those bystanders have no real place within the disaster. And so the attitudes have been to ignore them, to pretend that they aren't going to show up or probably more recently, and this would extend more so over the last 30 years or so, to just try and set up additional perimeter procedures to keep people out of the responses, to prevent those additional potential um, victims from heading into a disaster area. In general, when do volunteers tend to arrive? What phase of emergency management could you expect these spontaneous volunteers to materialize? So where we see the biggest numbers tends to be in the immediate response. And when we think about the immediate response to a large-scale disaster, so say an earthquake, we think about building the earth shaking, buildings collapsing, there being people buried in the rubble. And then generally we kind of skip a step, in my opinion, and we go straight to heavy urban search and rescue teams and professional responders coming in and pulling people from the rubble. The reality is that the vast majority of people who survive structural collapse, for example, tend to be rescued by spontaneous volunteers. So even urban search and rescue, which is kind of one of the most technical domains of disaster management, um, really, by and large, is conducted by spontaneous volunteers. And depending which earthquake you look at, 
the numbers vary, but you're looking at between 80 and 90 percent in most of the research that I've seen of people who survive those structural collapses are rescued by spontaneous volunteers. And this presents a number of challenges for first response organizations, not the least of which is that those highly technical capabilities tend to be very specialized and as such require a lot of funding to get them up and running, a lot of training time to maintain them, and you'd really want to see a lot of positive results from those teams. And when we take into consideration the number of people who are partially or uh, lightly buried during those structural collapse disasters, we actually see that, again, the vast majority is untrained, unaffiliated volunteers who happen to be either in the building or adjacent to the building which collapses, which see the need for some kind of an immediate response and are able to go in because they're so much more flexible in terms of timing. They're already on scene and they can go in and assist. So even before the true response happens, these volunteers are, are present. Is that something that we would want to control or is that something that is, is it possible to control in that very acute setting of the disaster? I often, when I'm talking about this in the classroom, present the parable of King Canute. So King Canute was a Norse king who was all-powerful and had, was surrounded by sycophants and had people telling him that he was the greatest. And um, I'm sure I'm going to kind of wreck the, the legend here, so I will uh, paraphrase it. But essentially, he um, was told that he was all-powerful and wanted to show the world that that's the way that he was. And I believe to set him up, one of his courtiers said, well, if you're so powerful, then why don't you just command the tide not to ride? And so he turned not to rise. And so he set his chair down by the ocean as the tide was going out. And he sat there and commanded the tide not to rise. And the tide continued to roll in and continued to roll in. And as it touched his toes, everybody in the kingdom recognized the fact that his power was nowhere near as um, complete as he had been assuming and he had been mentioning. So I think... That's the situation that we're in with spontaneous volunteers. Whether we want to control it or not, it's immaterial. They're going to show up. Whether we want to create stronger perimeters around our disaster zones or not, when we're talking about events at the level of a city, spontaneous volunteers are a fact of life. So I think the question is less about whether or not we would want to control them and uh, recognizing that we have a problem, right? That's the first step. And once we recognize that they will be there regardless, then we can start to make meaningful steps forward in trying to plan for how best to utilize that resource. On that note, you were involved in a Defense Research and Development Canada uh, CSS report called Building a Framework for Calgary's Emergency Volunteers. Can you tell us a little bit about that report? And then we'll get into what sort of framework is available for managing volunteers. Yeah, certainly. So that was a report that came about after the 2013 Calgary floods. And especially given that many of the listeners, I assume, are in Canada, everybody is familiar with the flood already. And many of the listeners are also likely already familiar with the YYC Helps hashtag. So during the flood, not only were we witnessing spontaneous volunteering happening in the way that we would predict based off of the 100 years of research that we've been following in disasters, but moreover, we saw people self-organizing via social media, which again, given our experience over the last decade, is completely predictable. But the city of Calgary and their emergency management agency did something interesting when they started to see these hashtags and these different coordination mechanisms popping up across um, the digital world. In the past, what we've seen frequently from first response organizations is an attempt to try and clamp down on where the official versions of information are coming from, 
what the official hashtags are, where people can go for authoritative information. And while the city of Calgary continued with many of those things, they also looked across this, the digital world to see where they were seeing really strong, positive things starting to emerge. And one of those places was YYC Helps. So rather than creating a duplicative platform, some innovative folks within the Calgary Emergency Management Agency kind of pushed everybody over to this YYC Helps um, startup industry that was happening that allowed people to self-organize and coordinate much of the response operations there, or much of the spontaneous volunteering response operations there. And this became tremendously successful for them, so much so that um, in the later term response, so after, I can't remember what the days were, but you know, a number of days into the flooding when they were looking for spontaneous volunteers to come out and help, they had spoken with their legal team, they had printed out, I think about 500 waivers, they were ready for 500 volunteers to show up at the CFL stadium, the Man Stadium in Calgary, and they put out a call through YYC Helps. And rather than getting a few hundred people showing up, they had a few thousand people who came forward. So they were really tapping into that full social media self-organizing ability of, um, of spontaneous volunteers and disasters, but also of social media. So as a result of that, in the debrief and the lessons learned from that disaster, one of the things that came forward from an after-action review conducted by the Conference Board of Canada was a recommendation for the City of Calgary to come up with some kind of a framework to better tap into that potential resource, that potential capacity that existed within the community. And they started asking around if anybody had been advancing work in this domain, and I was fortunate to be with Defence Research and Development Canada at that point. And we had some initial conversations with the head of their emergency management agency, and that led to this research report. And so this report was really designed to help scope out an initial framework for how best to tap into those spontaneous volunteers and how best to integrate those spontaneous volunteers in ways which were responsible and safe but also recognized that fact that in future events, this was something that was going to happen. And in reading through the article, it seems like there were some various uh, core functions or areas of uh, activity that uh, were identified in which volunteers could help and in which volunteers couldn't help. Where can spontaneous volunteers help out in a, in a disaster? Yeah, so our approach to this was really to look across different emergency management, and in this case also defense domains, to figure out some kind of a way to make sense of the mess. So when you have so many people arriving with so many diverse skill sets, it can be really challenging to, in any meaningfully, in any meaningful way, direct them to the place where they're most appropriate. So we talked about potentially people who are trained as nurses and doctors showing up in this case at McMahon Stadium and being given a broom and a dustpan and being told to go and you know sweep at a basement. So, you know, hypothetically, we have people who just aren't really being effectively utilized. So as a means to try and get around that, we look to something called a capability-based planning approach. And that's an approach used extensively both within the, the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency in the U.S., and also the Department of National Defense in the U.S., and to a certain extent as well in the Canadian Forces. And through that capability-based planning approach, essentially what we do at a high level is pull together a list of target capabilities. So what are the big groupings of activities that make up emergency management? 
And if we have that list of between 30 and 40 capability areas, we can start to at least triage where the skill sets may be that we would be looking for, how we might be able to get people to self-identify under those skill sets, what credentialing procedures could potentially look like under each of those, and just essentially make sense of that mess as a first step. The next step for us was then to look at organizations that were either expanding or extending organizations. So if we just go back to that typology that we mentioned earlier on, if we're looking now not just to take advantage of the relationship between professional first responders, so those type one organizations, and spontaneous volunteers or those type four emergent groups, what can we do to help empower type one and type three organizations to take a more proactive role? And so that led us into integrating the capability-based planning approach with something called the cluster model for humanitarian response. And this is something developed under the United Nations that's been in place at least notionally since the 90s, but really kind of in earnest over the last decade. And by generating those clusters, we were able to streamline or triage those list of capabilities even, even more meaningfully, and also identified those civil society, those private sector organizations who may be able to take on more of a leadership role to try and enable the emergency management agency within the city of Calgary and also any other professional first responders to focus more on their core tasks. And if there was an opportunity to share some of the, the leadership, to share some of that coordinating role, to distribute that leadership and that coordination further out across society, recognizing that one of the biggest problems in emergency management is just information management. And if there are ways that we can enable different groups to make, again, responsible, safe decisions, that we can train them in advance on the kinds of decisions that may be presented with, if we can start to lay out the kinds of capabilities that they would need to advance their specific clusters. So when we start to take in those spontaneous volunteers, we can really begin to sort them, move them to the correct clusters, they can report up to the correct non-governmental or civil society organizations, or even public sector organizations, and all of that can come forward in a more streamlined way to the emergency management agency. What sort of mechanisms for getting that message out or for identifying these strengths within the emergent volunteers have been useful in past uh, disasters? I think now we're getting to the edge of where we had any real experience in the research. So this is what we proposed as an approach, and we ran a tabletop exercise to try and see if this is something that could potentially work. To my knowledge, there's a number of different apps and different software applications that are being used in cities, uh, in particular in the United States, but I suspect across the developed world. And we really have not yet, to my knowledge, seen kind of the, the exemplar, the, the gold standard for how to do this. So once we get up to the edge of the model that we've proposed, we really don't know if it's something that's going to be effective. We have seen within the humanitarian um, response industry that the cluster model is something that seems to be working relatively well, although even there, there are meaningful critiques about it. We know that that distributed control model is something that is quite at odds with how we traditionally structure our emergency management agencies and organizations, in particular, again, in Canada and the U.S. So there is almost certainly going to be a tension there. But I'm not sure that we've really seen a best case scenario yet where somebody has done this work in advance, 
has set up the conversations at a high level about distributing control with civil society, with non-governmental organizations in different parts of the public sector, and then has experienced the disaster in which they could actually implement this. So I guess the, that's a long way of saying, I just don't know. So it's cutting-edge research. Well, it's something like that. So you mentioned some other mechanisms that are based in FEMA or other countries. Uh, this DRDC report uh, emphasizes that it's a made-in-Canada approach to coordinating volunteers. Why is it important to have a Canadian-based approach? I think it's both important to have a Canadian-based approach and also important to have um, local input into the approach. So let's tackle the Canadian part of the approach first. We have a very different governance structure over how we deal with emergencies in Canada than the United States does. So in the United States, if the Federal Emergency Management Agency would like to see all municipalities and all states starting to adopt something like this cluster model, let's say hypothetically, they can do something called a, uh, a presidential decree, and they can say, all right, from this time forward, this is the way that things shall be if anybody wants to access any FEMA funding moving forward. And that's just not a policy mechanism that exists in Canada. So what we have is a much more cooperative approach where the federal government and the provinces and territories cooperate and agree voluntarily with one another when things make sense to try and push forward with an approach to deal with any part of emergency management. So we don't have that ability to come forward and lay out a single um, a single methodology and immediately pull the trigger and make that be the law of the land or the approach of the land. And we can see examples of this in things like the incident command system, where in the United States, uh, I believe it was under the Bush administration, there was a presidential decree that the national uh, incident management system would be adopted in the United States, and almost overnight that was now the way that all states and a, a majority of municipalities were operating. In Canada, that's not something that we've ever been able to meaningfully advance. So again, in terms of a Made in Canada solution, we need to find something which is much more cooperative, which is something that's negotiated among the provinces and territories, and much more reflective of the different operating environments that different provinces and territories have in Canada. Not to say that the U.S. doesn't have that diversity of operating environments, but I think given the, the geographic scale of Canada and the economic realities of different parts of the country, there are certainly environmental, social, and economic issues that are much more variable province to province within Canada than you may see state to state within the U.S. So definitely a Made in Canada solution is important because of our overall emergency management governance construct. On the local piece, this was a real learning experience for us going through the development of the report, and that was how much variability there is even in just identifying the core capabilities for emergency management within a municipality. So we had thought initially in going through the literature that there was going to be a clear consensus around those capabilities, that this is something we were going to be able to bring forward to the Calgary Emergency Management Agency, and it would just be self-evident. And that really was not our experience. There was a lot of desire on the part of the Emergency Management Agency, as well as other sectors within the city of Calgary, to weigh in on and uh, adjust those, uh, those capabilities. And I think that it made the approach all the more valuable and all the more meaningful to them by their ability to have input and make sure that it was reflective, not just of the language that they use within the municipal government, but also with the intent. So again, doing the studies here in Ottawa, Ottawa and 
within the Department of National Defense in particular has its own culture and its own context. And going out to the city of Calgary and kind of embedding that culture and context within the work that we were doing was incredibly important. And I think that that helped to contribute to some of the success that we experienced in the subsequent exercise. So it sounds to me like emergent volunteers are here to stay. Uh, what would you give as advice to a local emergency manager as they try to create their own framework for managing volunteers? Um, I think the most important thing from my perspective is just to admit that we have a problem. And I think that there is, in our experience, when we have these conversations, an initial unwillingness to accept the fact that these spontaneous volunteers are going to show up. And so we tend to see the first round of proposed strategies for dealing with them, kind of trying to find different ways to change the rules to deny the problem. So an example would be when we talk about spontaneous volunteers, people will immediately go to how they are going to set up a stronger perimeter around the impact zone to keep people out, which makes sense potentially in the abstract. But when you think about, again, a city-level event, there's tons of people already in the zone. So regardless, those spontaneous volunteers are going to exist within that perimeter, um, at least in the foreseeable future after the event. So that's really just a non-starter. A second approach that we often see that just seems too problematic to actually implement in any meaningful way is to try and just register everybody in advance. And so again, if you think about the number of people who are already going to be spontaneously responding, that pre-registration of everybody within a community and keeping that database up to, up to, um, up to date is probably something that's just not going to happen. So I think really, truly and meaningfully understanding that spontaneous volunteers are going to arrive and starting to think about what we will do with them when they arrive, recognizing that we may not have, up until the time that they show up, had any opportunity to vet them or screen them or sort them. And so if we are able to use that as a point of departure, I think from there on in, it's pure gravy. From there on in, we're into, again, that kind of leading edge of our practice as a discipline because nobody has really done that to my knowledge in any really significantly successful way. So if we can start out recognizing the fact that we have this problem that people are going to be showing up and we accept that fact and we take that as the point where we start to plan and we really start to apply our minds in creative and innovative ways of how we're going to actually deal with that problem, I think then we get into the sweet spot. So I wouldn't even pretend that the DRDC report or that just about any of the other approaches out there are sufficiently comprehensive for everyone yet. I would just say that if we can all just agree that this is a thing that's going to happen and we can certainly point people towards the century worth of evidence that it's going to happen, we can point people towards the last decade of evidence that not only is it going, going to happen, it's very likely going to happen more now given social media and the potential of people not just showing up in person to volunteer, but also wanting to volunteer digitally or from a distance in other ways, um, then we can start to really get into a, a point of creativity and a point of coming up with new, better solutions. Matt Godso, thank you so much for donating your time and knowledge for this epic interview. It's very much appreciated, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Cheers. My pleasure. Anytime. Grayson, that sounds like a great interview, uh, a really good discussion. It was. I especially liked how he recast this idea of uh, volunteers into those typologies, but also uh, talking about first responders in a different way. So he, he used the example of the, um, the earthquakes where 
the first responders are actually the spontaneous volunteers or maybe even the victims themselves that uh, do the, the initial part of the rescuing. And I don't think that's specific to earthquakes. I think that we see that in all sorts of different disasters. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a very thin line there between uh, disaster victim and the true first responders and disasters. It makes me worried a little bit when I hear this interview that uh, everything I've been taught about how to manage spontaneous volunteers may have been wrong because uh, I was definitely taught the top-down approach, get everybody into a room, fill out a bunch of forms, tell me the skills that you have, we'll sort through them and match that with our needs assessment about the jobs that need to be done and while you're at it, why don't you sign a, um, a waiver and liability release for the city that you're not going <laughs> to sue us after the disaster. Yeah. <laughs> And certainly that might be effective in a very small scale, but now that we're dealing with social media and this digital age, it definitely brings it into a, a new context. Um, one question that I wish I had asked, we, we went over, uh, can we expect these volunteers all the time? Uh, the, the question I wish I had asked was, can we rely on volunteers to just show up? Should we just make spontaneous volunteers part of the disaster management plan? And instead of focusing on managing volunteers if they show up, focus on supporting the volunteers that will show up. I, I wonder if the terminology, we keep calling it volunteer management, maybe we're not managing yeah. anything, right? It should be vo how to support spontaneous volunteers yeah. or empower. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on. On to the Journal Club. The episode we're going to discuss this week is from our friends down under. It's an article from the Australian Journal of Emergency Management. Um, the article is titled Managing Spontaneous Volunteers in Emergencies, a Local Government Perspective. The author is Lucy Cerrone and the, the basic uh, uh, paper is a case report of some efforts uh, that were uh, done in the Victoria region as they were doing some planning around how to improve their response to managing spontaneous volunteers. And the key assertion in this peer-reviewed letter is uh, we probably have some flawed perceptions on how spontaneous volunteers present and what some of the perceived risks might be. They basically broke it down into four key areas which are were identified uh, by local emergency managers as potential, potential issues for why they were nervous about having spontaneous volunteers formally uh, in their responses. The first one was just simply there's too many unknowns. We don't know who the people are, their level of training. Maybe they're going to hinder the response rather than help it. Maybe they're actually you know, up to, to no good and uh, are just looking for opportunities to enter people's homes during a vulnerable time. Um, the second issue was the problem about litigation and insurance coverage. Would a municipality be open to litigation if there was negligence on behalf of a responder that you've uh, you know, given a, a proxy delegation to, to, to help out in your response. And what if somebody gets injured? Who's going to cover that, that uh, volunteer uh, from an insurance perspective? The third issue was the financial implications. What's the cost of managing a, a volunteer response? And, uh, you know, what other hidden expenses might there be? And the fourth, fourth was social implications and how the perceived uh, responses uh, by the uh local community. So just to quickly go through those four, the unknowns, I think the authors do a good job of explaining away most of our innate fears when you first talk about having volunteers and disaster in the same sentence. And really that's based on, you know, 
decades now of uh, reliable examples of volunteers actually uh, doing the bulk of the heavy lifting and actually uh, demonstrating that they're an essential part of the response. The litigation question, this is Australian specific, but they did do uh, get a legal opinion on the issue and there's actually very little case law or jurisprudence at all around uh, volunteers in general, not just in disasters uh, uh, being litigated, uh, but further within the disaster realm, um, in the Australian context, they were talking about uh, there's likely sufficient legal protections for a municipality, and there's also insurance protections built in for any volunteer who's what they call an employee at law. Uh, they talked a little bit about Commonwealth countries in general, and I don't know how much that would extend to Canada, but certainly I haven't heard of any major legal issues with volunteers in Canadian disaster responses. The third issue around the financial implications, they found that volunteers were a huge cost saver. So this might be an easy sell to uh, decision makers about why they ought to include volunteers is there's a dr dramatic decrease in the overall cost of your disaster response the more that you use volunteers and that makes a lot of sense. And the fourth part I thought was most interesting. This talked about the social implications and the authors talked about disasters, and especially disaster volunteers who are responding to help in their own community, actually having a right to be there. And this is part of their healing and part of their um, their process with dealing with trauma is actually contributing to the rebuilding of their community. And I thought that was an interesting point I hadn't, hadn't heard before. Uh, they talked about the 2009 uh, bushfires where a lot of volunteers were excluded from the response and there's quite a backlash in the community. And certainly um, uh, the optics were quite poor of uh, having volunteers withheld from the disaster response and I think we've seen that in Canadian examples too. Yeah the obvious one being the Red River floods when uh, specifically farmer and rural community members were not allowed to go and defend their homes, defend mm -hmm. their livelihoods. You uh, need to have a good justification to keep people out of their homes. Absolutely. On to our next segment. So we often like to bring a practical tool of the trade. We couldn't find one. It <laughs> seems to be the case that there is very little new uh, standard practices and standardized tools for managing volunteers. There are a lot of old tools. Uh, how to set up a volunteer reception center, how to fill out forms, and as you were, as you were saying, really knuckle down and make sure there's lots of paperwork. Turns out that's completely ineffective these days, and the best thing that we could possibly turn you on to are maybe some social media management tools or some digital community engagement tools that the, uh, for example, the YWC Helps right. uh, website that was used during the Calgary floods. Uh, one such tool is Rally Engine. It provides an interactive platform for community capability matching both beforehand and during a potential emergency, but there are a lot of different different tools out there. Yeah, the, the, the source you see cited most frequently in a lot of the um, literature is the volunteer standards by the state of Florida, the uh, NGOs active in uh, disaster response. But really the paradigm is shifting a lot from those traditional teachings. Yeah. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. You've been listening to Here to Help, an approach to managing spontaneous volunteers. And a huge thank you to Matt Godso for uh, being uh, our interviewee this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to an epic podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool for the emergency management professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast 
do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, Canadian.